May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So we've been going through this season of Advent the last few weeks. And uh, we come this morning to week three. And I mentioned earlier that the focus is on John the Baptist. But actually this morning I decided that I'm not going to speak on the gospel lesson which talks about John the Baptist and how he's the, the friend of the bridegroom and he's preparing the way and he says um, he must increase, I must decrease. Um, I'm not going to focus on the Isaiah reading which talks about the new heavens and the new earth. It's so good. In fact, all four of the readings uh, are so good. It was hard for me to know where to focus today. Um, but then as I thought about it, I knew I had to go with 1 Thessalonians 5 for a very obvious reason. Can anyone guess why? <laughs> yes, because Nora's the cutest reader. Yes. yes. And that's how I usually choose my reading. I mean, my scripture, you know. Uh, no, uh, so because this one starts with saying that you ought to respect your pastors to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so I'm like, it's like, yeah, that's the one. I'm sensing this is what the flock really needs to hear this morning. No, but in all seriousness, this is just a great passage from start to finish. Could you grab a Bible and turn with me there to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. It's on page 988 in your pew Bible. And I actually want to start out um, with one of the verses from the end. So in verse 27, the Apostle Paul says that the recipients, he, he says this to those who are receiving this letter. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this read to all the brothers. So I, I think this sentence is significant for a couple of reasons. First, it shows that Paul, Paul's, his teaching functioned authoritatively in the life of the early church, even when he wasn't present. He wasn't there. He wasn't the day-to-day -day pastor of this church, but his teaching functioned authoritatively. His apostolic role was actually similar to that of the Old Testament prophets. And so his letters actually functioned as scripture in the early church. If you don't believe me, um, you can look later on at, at 2 Peter chapter 3, where the apostle Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. He actually calls them scripture, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. And, you know, in that day, when these things are still being rolled out, the church knew this is the holy word of God. Now, um, there's a second reason I wanted to look at this. A second reason I wanted to start here, because it reminds us that Paul wanted his letters to be read in their entirety. Right? Not just bits and pieces. And of course, today I'm preaching on some bits and pieces. We got a short section of 17 verses. But God's people are also called to know the rest of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says he wanted all the brothers and sisters to know its contents. And so I ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, do you know Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Do you know Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians? Would you be able to identify its major themes? Have you read it cover to cover? Have you read it any time in the last few years or ever? Because Paul, who was appointed by Christ himself, put the recipients of this letter under oath that all the church would hear this teaching. And I, I think it's so crucial brothers and sisters, for Christians to know the scriptures. 
St. Jerome warned that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. It may surprise you to know that in Paul's day, the Jews actually had a much higher literacy rate than the Romans. And that might be surprising to us because we think, oh, the Romans, you know, art and architecture and culture and all these wonderful achievements. But it was the Jewish people who more highly valued saying, hey, we want all our young sons. And they wanted all their young daughters to know how to read. Why? Because that's how much they valued them being able to hear and read and understand the Word of God. Now, I, I ask you, have you been feeling distant from God lately? And I want to suggest a very time-tested remedy, which is that you set aside 25 minutes a day to read Scripture. Whether it's in the morning or last thing at night or during a lunch break, and, you know, just, just spend some time reading the scriptures, praying to the Lord, and just see what God does. See if he speaks to you. I think if we're too busy to set aside daily time to be with God and his word, then we're too busy. And I urge you not just to squeak it in. You know, don't rush. Give God your full attention. And see what happens. Don't just kind of skim through it the way that we skim through, you know, so many other things in our life. The Father loves you. He's been waiting to be with you. And it's not just about like a religious obligation so we can tick our box and say, you know, now I feel good about myself because I read scripture today. It's about time, intimate time with your creator. One time I was with a young man who was dealing with an addiction and it was a daily struggle for him. And uh, I remember as we talked, um, he, he mentioned you know, that he, he wasn't really practicing any spiritual disciplines. He wasn't really engaging with the Lord. And so we said, okay, we're going to meet again in like two weeks. But between now and then, how about you just start to um, you know, begin having some time with God in Scripture again every day? You know, that had fallen away and just sort of begin to reinitiate that relationship, sort of open up that door that had been closed for you for a while. And so he's like, okay, sure, you know, we decided on a, a, a path of scripture for him to read through or whatever. And so we got together two weeks later, and when we got together, we were going to talk about this thing that was, had been a daily addiction for him. He's like, I was like, so how's it, you know, you know let's talk a little bit about this. He's actually, actually, it's been fine. I said, for how long? He said, for two weeks. I said, wow, that's amazing. You know, I talked to him like a month later, and it was still, he was still doing well. Right? And, and so I'm like, well, what's going on here, you know? And it seemed like what had happened is because he opened this door to a relationship that had been closed, it sort of changed the dynamic. It sort of changed what he was able to do in response to God because he was experiencing the love of God on a daily basis as he met him in his word. Now, I, I, it's important to admit that it doesn't always work out that quickly when it comes to our addictions. But I do think so much of Christian life is just doing the things that we already know to do, right? We know this is a good thing, and we do it because we want that edification, we want that connection with God. And we could all do the same thing as this young man and begin prioritizing time with God and His Word. I'll bet you could read all of 1 Thessalonians in 25 minutes. It's not that long. Or you could say, you know, I'm, I just, I'm like a slow reader. I'm like somebody when they play Mario Brothers that I got to get all the coins, you know. 
Um, you know, that's, that's cool too, you know, read slow, just read a chapter a day or a half chapter a day and just meditate on that and respond to the Lord in prayer. All right, moving on. One of the things that we'll start to notice as we read all of Paul's letters, as we read them from start to finish, is that um, there's, there's this sort of pattern in Paul's letters, which is that the first half or more oftentimes is focusing on the gospel. It clarifies the gospel. It clarifies what the gospel says. It clarifies who we are in Christ before it ever, more near the end of the letters, goes on to begin to give us moral instruction. So, you know, Paul does end up teaching morality. There is ethics in his letters, but just like here in 1 Thessalonians, it usually comes more near the end. There's kind of like this rapid-fire list of virtues that comes our way. And this way of structuring Paul's letters is intentional. So it's supposed to communicate something to us about the gospel, that grace comes before works, right? That salvation comes before virtue. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, God's mercy goes before the unwilling to make him willing. God's mercy goes before the unwilling to make him willing. I think the most famous example of this, of course, is in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. At this point, Paul's gone through 12, I see, 11 full chapters of, of the most dense epistle probably in the whole Bible. And he starts uh, chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, and then he starts to talk about some practical applications, some ways that we can respond in love. But oftentimes, you know, we'll hear, we'll have Bible studies or we'll hear, hear teachings or whatever, and it'll start, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And we never actually studied what the therefore is therefore, right? So we need to flip back. We need to look at the first 11 chapters. And what do we see? It's this amazing explication of how we were saved, not by what we did, but by what God has done. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. So Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul says, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for ha- perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. He says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what chapters 1 through 11 are all about. God's mercy goes before the unwilling to make us willing. But then when we come to the end of Paul's letters, he gets into this practical morality. And we we see this practical morality in a different way after all that, right? We see that it's actually gospel-shaped. So why is it, um, in this passage we read today, that no one should repay evil for evil? That's what Paul says here in verse 15. And we should know the answer to that if we know the gospel. Because we already know that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And so if this is the way that God dealt with us while we were his enemies, therefore, right, we are forbidden to seek revenge or to repay evil for evil. Because it's inconsistent with the gospel that has been laid out. It's inconsistent with the gospel of our salvation. So we see that the life of Christian virtue flows out of a grateful response to the gospel. Now if we get that straight, then we're more prepared to face these sections where there's these rapid-fire list of virtues where it's like, whoa, this is overwhelming. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this stuff. But let's dive into them. There's, there's more here than I have time to comment on. I want to wish I could talk about praying without ceasing or greeting all the brothers with a holy kiss. Um, I'd love to go there. 
Um, but let me at least highlight three of these instructions. At the very least, I mean, just like a friendly fist pound, you know? It's got to be that, you know? Pull it in for a hug, I would recommend. But anyway, moving on. All right. <laughs> so first, uh, Paul says in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. The idol, that is, those who refuse to work a job and earn an income. He already commanded in the Thessalonians, to, he, he already commanded them in chapter 3 to work with their hands and be dependent on no one. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That sounds pretty extreme, right? And one reason for that that Paul gives elsewhere in Ephesians is he says, so that you may have something to share with those in need. So one of the reasons for working is that so we'll have the opportunity to be generous, he says. And here in verse 14, Paul says we ought to admonish the idol among us. So that means we don't just like turn a blind eye. We warn them. We advise them. We urge them to do all that they can to earn a living. Now, I know a lot of you are students and some of the students went away. That's your work right now and that's fine. Some of you guys are working a job and students. Um, hallelujah. That's great. Um, a, a, but a while back, I met um, a young man in my neighborhood. Um, honestly, he wasn't that much younger than me. Um, and he found out that I was a pastor, and he wanted to just sort of spend some time with me and talk about spiritual things. You know, he communicated to me that he's a devout Christian, and he's interested in talking about spiritual things. But as I got to know him over the course of a couple weeks, I learned, you know, this guy's, this guy's living with his mom. You know, and, and I, you know, asked him questions, and this guy doesn't work, and he's not looking for a job, and he hasn't worked a job in several years. He, he hasn't earned a paycheck. And I just remember, you know, pausing at one point and gently in our conversation just saying, listen, my friend, if you want to honor Jesus, then you have to honor what his word says about you working with your hands and doing what you can to make an income. Like, that's your next step. Like, we can talk about prayer, we can talk about time in the Word, we can talk about evangelism, we can talk about love for the poor, but do what God tells you to do with your time and with your work. This is part of your worship to God, right? And he didn't really like that I said that. <laughs> and it turned out his previous pastor had told him the same thing. And that's why he left that church. But you know, the truth is that, that people got kicked out of the early church for this sort of thing. If they did not repent, if you don't believe me, read 2 Thessalonians 3, where, where Paul warns the same community to, quote, have nothing to do with them. They're not willing to repent on this issue, have nothing to do with them. They thought that Christians who didn't work brought disrepute to the gospel of Christ. See, the early church understood the difference between being merciful which Christ commanded, and being an enabler, which is good for no one. It's good for no one. And I wonder, do we understand that difference today? Second, moving on a few verses, I think 19 through 21 are particularly interesting. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. So, you know, when, when the fire of the Holy Spirit starts to burn in the assembly and there's this sense of spiritual momentum and it's going good, don't douse that flame. Don't quench that spirit, Paul is saying. 
Now, someone might read this verse and say, well, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone want to quench the spirit? But I, I think this is, this is a real temptation in the church. This has been a temptation down through the years, especially for leaders, you know, who like to have a sense of control over what's going on, you know? Um, I remember one time I was at a prayer meeting and uh, this person who was leading the prayer meeting was just very, very simple. He was just saying, you know, I just think before we start praying, um, I, we should just call out and ask the Holy Spirit to come in this place and to come with power. And so he led off this prayer and then people started praying. And I just remember I was like standing there at that prayer meeting and I was just like looking around nervously and I'm like, I'm not so sure about this, you know. I don't know about this. And uh, I was feeling skeptical about this whole calling the Holy Spirit down and calling his power down. And uh, I remember the Lord said to me in my heart, um, Taylor, I know it's the Lord because I, I, don't, I didn't think about language in this sort of way. Taylor, trust me to pastor my own power. Trust me to pastor my own power. It's like, no, I, I want to shepherd it. I want everything that's happening to be something that I'm allowing to happen, right? I open this door, you can go through it. I shut this door, you cannot go there. Right? But that wasn't what the Lord had in mind in this relationship. I, I, I had a friend um, uh, in college, and he had just begun to start to follow Jesus. We were both philosophy majors, and he was very, very rational, very, very reasonable. And I remember we went to this healing prayer gathering, which doesn't really seem like a very rational or reasonable thing. And he spent time praying and worshiping the Lord, and then he went up to be prayed for by these old ladies, right? And these two old ladies are praying for him and prophesying and whatever. And he told me later, he started to have this experience where he started to feel like he was like about to fall backwards. And he's like, no, no. He's like, I've seen this on TV before. And he said, he said, he said in his heart, no, this is not happening. And he said the next thing he knew, he woke up and he was on the ground. And these old ladies had caught him. And he said, I was just laying there in peace. And I just laid there and I just, you know, kept letting the peace of God wash over me. And he just, you know, had this sort of like peacefully defeated tone about it. You know, he didn't like that very much, but it turned out uh, that, that the Lord had good intentions for him. Now, um, I think that this sense of resistance, of resisting the Holy Spirit, this sense of, of not wanting to be vulnerable even before our Creator is actually a common thing. Am I right? We don't trust that God has good and beautiful intentions for us. So Paul encourages us here, do not quench the Spirit. And I think the next couple of verses actually help to explain what Paul means by this in, uh, in more detail. He, because he says, he says right after that, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, he says. Hold fast to what is good. So there's a connection in this case between quenching the Spirit and despising prophecies. Right, so in essence, the Thessalonians were not allowing the Holy Spirit to move and speak freely through his people. And um, I, I think it's important to say now there's a balance to all this. Because when Paul talks to the Corinthians, he gives them essentially the exact opposite advice, right? He tells them, you know, their worship is so disorderly. It looks like chaos. And in their efforts to make freedom for the Holy Spirit... Their gatherings have turned uh, in, into this chaotic thing. And he says, you know, there's a right place for prophecy. And there's a right place for tongues if you have that gift. And uh, there's supposed to be this sense of order in the midst of freedom. 
So there's freedom and order. These things live in tension with one another. It's not just a free-for-all. Paul says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets in 1 Corinthians 14. But, but I think this morning, I think it would be a good, a good thing for us to know which side like we err on. Like, which way do we err? So this is a personal inventory. This is just between you and God, all right? So are you more like the Thessalonians, where you need this encouragement from the apostle to kind of say, hey, man, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Open up that door. Let God move freely, right? Or are you more like the Corinthians, where it's like, Hey, you need to rein it in. There's this thing called the Bible, and there's this thing called biblical authority, and there's this thing called order and worship, right? So which one are you more like, the Thessalonians or the Corinthians? You can, you can vote in your own heart. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's good to allow God's word to challenge us because it almost always cuts both ways, right? That's why Paul says, even in this passage, to test everything. That is, to test any words of prophecy and to hold fast to what is good. So we test these things by the scriptures. Since the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, we know that he's not going to contradict what he's already said. We also test it by the fruit of the Spirit. Are they producing? Are the things that are happening, are the experiences that you have producing love, joy, peace, humility? Or are they producing showiness? Are they producing divisions? Are they producing pride? So freedom needs to be checked by biblical order. Now, I hope if you've been around incarnation for a while, you see that we, we try to somewhat live in this tension. Right? We're trying to live in this tension between order and freedom when it comes to the, thing of the, the things of the Spirit. Even though we're a liturgical church and we care deeply about biblical preaching, um, we also make space, even on Sunday morning, to pray aloud together. We offer prayer ministry in the back during communion. We often open up a time for prophecy after communion. But recently, we've actually been longing for even more of a space um, to meet God in prayer, to meet God in worship, to be ministered to in prayer. And so uh, when the new year comes, we're going to actually start these monthly gatherings of extended worship and prayer ministry just for more space for the Holy Spirit to move freely in your life. And we hope that many of you will come to encounter God on those nights. And we want to see all this done, of course, with a sense of biblical order. But we just wonder if the Lord has some fresh good things to bring into our lives through that. All right, finally, third. I mentioned I can't say something about all these little phrases because each of them could be a sermon in their own right. Um, finally, in verse 22... Uh, in case everything else that Paul has said hasn't been challenging to you, he drops this command. He says, abstain from every form of evil. Every form of evil. I mean, this is a high call of holiness. The Christian, he says, is not allowed to make peace with some sort of form of evil in your life whether it's filthy speech or racist thoughts or the media that we consume or dishonesty with money, we're not allowed to make peace with any of these things. God wants it all. And I think sometimes we sort of say to God, okay, I've stopped doing such and such and I'm generally more moral than the next guy and so leave me alone from now on. I'm, just, I'm not trying to be like a saint or anything. Right? Like, we might not say that aloud, but that, that might be kind of like where the posture of our heart is about these things. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. 
God is not done with any of us. If you've been following the Lord for 40 years, if you've been following the Lord for four weeks, God is not done with you. He wants to make us eternally beautiful. Can we put one of those fractals back up on the screen? So this is what God is up to. He wants to make every one of you eternally beautiful. Look down with me at verses 23 and 24. It says, Now may the God of peace himself, and notice, notice that it's God doing the work. Now, I mean, we, we pray, we engage the word, we love our enemies, all these sorts of things that he's already been talking about. But God, it says, is personally active. It's this sort of like asymmetrical relationship. And God does the heavy lifting. He says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul, oh my goodness, the totality of this, God wants in all the doors of this interior castle. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I love that the promise is not rooted in our faithfulness, it's rooted in his faithfulness. The process is never done in this life, but he will bring it to completion. This is God's purpose for your life. The kingdom advancing inwardly, not just outwardly. The kingdom advances both ways. The creator is at work in you. I want to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis that I think beautifully illustrates this point about God making us holy and that it's God himself who's at work. He says this. He says, put right out of your head this idea that these are all only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ says and then try to carry it out as, as a man may read what Plato or Mark says and try to carry it out. He says they mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you're saying your prayers, in this very room where we're worshiping, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It's a living man, still as much as a man as you, and still as much as God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self. Killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments. Then for longer periods. Finally, if it all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing. Into a little Christ. A being which, in its own small way, has the same kind of life as God. Which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are upfront about your intentions for humanity. And that even though we rail against them, even though we are afraid of the vulnerability that requires, that that requires of us, we're afraid to go into the light because our eyes haven't adjusted to it. That you are desiring every person who's hearing my voice every person outside of this building to know your son Jesus and to be made eternally beautiful through your work in us.
Thank you that you will be faithful to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please take a few moments to meditate.